Welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 110. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu, and on the mic with me is my man, Musa Kalenga. What's up, bro? Hey, Andile, how you doing? And hello, Africa. How are you guys doing? Hey, we're doing great, and I trust Africa is in uh, great spirits. Uh, we've had some successful elections uh, take place in East Africa. Um, Southern Africa is limping a little bit because of other issues. But on the whole, we're survivors, bruh. Yeah, and, uh, you know, my shout-outs and my heartfelt condolences go out to uh, to the Ivory Coast. Um, the mudslides in the last couple of days, which have obviously claimed a number of lives. So um, we are thinking about the families out there as well. And of course, um, we know that uh, Nigeria, your your president, is is uh, not very well at the moment. Our thoughts uh, to you as well as you struggle through this recessionary climate and um, political uncertainty. Folks, let's get it done, though, regardless, yeah? That's what we're known for. Africa's got resilience, but uh, let's keep it going. There's some great news to report this week. Among other things, we'll be talking about some uh, pretty exciting investment news on uh, Africa's uh, uh, tech scene. Nigeria, you guys. Uh, delivered solidly uh, East Africa not to be outdone South Africa's got some good news too it's all coming up but first young African women do not often get to see themselves represented in the tech space now it's difficult to aspire to what you can't see and that's why we're really excited about a brand new book that's in the works called Founding Women it's a book spotlighting African female founders who are building technology businesses across the continent and the diaspora. Now, Eunice Baguma-Ball is the founder and executive director uh, at Africa Technology Business Network. It's a London-based network that does amazing work on the continent. uh, And it's their goal to highlight role models to inspire young African women to fulfill their potential as innovators and tech leaders. Take a listen to what she had to say about the project. So we're running a crowdfunding campaign to help us, um, first of all, to print um, copies of the book when we have that ready. So we're aiming to have those ready by Christmas. Um, So you can support by, first of all, by pre-ordering a copy of the book. Also, anything you can do to help share the campaign. So we have... uh, the, the details about the campaign are pinned on our on our social media pages again. And or if you just search hashtag founding women, you know, online, you'll be able to see all the activities and get the link to the crowdfund. So please share. Let's make this book happen. At the moment, we are 10 percent of our campaign, which means we can give away 15 books. And we and, and that's enough to support one woman for six months um, dedicated support to actually help them set up their business through our accelerator program. And we are looking to raise ten thousand pounds to help ten women through our for six months through our program and give away one fifty books. So help us get there. Please hashtag founding women. Now you can look forward to Eunice interviewing inspirational founders such as Rebecca Enonchong, who's of course the CEO of Appstick and good friend of our show, uh, Hilda Mora, the founder and CEO of Pezesha, and there are many other established and upcoming founders working in energy, health, software, fintech, and um, and really just so much to be excited about. We can't wait for this book to come out. And you heard from Eunice herself how you can get involved. We're backing this one all the way. Get involved, Africa, and let's see this one come to fruition. Now it's time for the news. Let's jump straight in. It's been three weeks since our last uh, full sort of African Tech Roundup podcast. And so there's quite a few uh, uh, items of note that we'd like to get through today. Not least the fact that Google CEO uh, Sunda Pichai chose to visit Nigeria at the end of last month. Uh, that got some Nigerians excited, Musa. Absolutely. And what we've seen is that over the last couple of months, people like Mark Zuckerberg, um, who's obviously the, the CEO and founder of uh, Facebook, as well as the Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, have also kind of landed in, in Nigeria trying to figure out what's going on. And I think it's a, it's a big signal um, as far as those tech, uh, those tech companies looking at South Africa and Africa as an opportunity for investment, number one, but also also to start grappling with some of the kind of baseline challenges that you need to solve to be able to operate here. So I think these are great indications. But uh, if you look at Google specifically, I think they've been doing a lot of work even in the in the empowerment space. I mean, I've, I've spent quite a lot of time with them on the Digify program, which is an amazing initiative. Um, and I think they've got their, their sights set quite high on being able to solve some core problems when it comes to education as well. 
It's some are seeing this as a sort of uh, neat counterpunch to the fact that Jack Ma totally snubbed West Africa <laughs> very recently when he visited the continent. And uh, I was reminded by one of our listeners, actually, um, who, who wrote us on Facebook. Uh, shout out to you, Robert Moracha, who reminded us on Facebook that Lagos continues to be Africa's most valuable startup destination by many metrics, uh, not least the fact that um, they, only ha- they only have Cape Town to beat in terms of the number of startups um, in their ecosystem. Ecosystem, but also in terms of the value they seem to be creating uh, from a revenue perspective and also in terms of the investment they seem to attract. Shout out to you, Lagos. And um, that information certainly not lost on Google CEO choosing to spend quite a bit of time in Nigeria, announcing quite a few interesting products that they'll be launching, um, some grant funding, you know, reminding us, of course, of Google's commitment to put out $20 million uh, uh, worth of grant funding uh, to causes targeting improving African lives. Uh, $2.5 million of that money, of course, being uh, given out in the form of initial grants, targeting nonprofit arms of African startups, the likes of Giddy Mobile and Siavula, um, look, again, I mean, I, don't, I only get so excited about grant funding, but um, there is some decent intent on, on, on Google's part to sort of be a meaningful partner to Africa's ecosystem, the Launchpad Accelerator they're planning. YouTube Go got some people excited, the fact that um, you should be able to download content and watch it later at much cheaper rates than, you know, uh, than you ever have before, a Nigeria-specific product. Yeah, there's quite a bit he, he announced Um of course, we, we, we only get so excited about these high-profile safaris at this point in our, in our, in our commentary. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a good signal uh, reminding the world that Africa and prospects on the continent are a real thing. Yeah, and I think one of the you know, more responsible narratives around the visit was this kind of uh, um, this, this, this preparing 10 million youths in Africa for jobs of the future, um, which I think you know, is an important thing to consider, not only for Google, but uh, you know, for Africa as a continent, as far as how we are training, educating, and ecosysteming, for lack of a better word, um, young people to be able to solve problems in the future. Um, now we do know that the kind of their training initiatives so far have delivered uh, 100,000 software developers. Uh, oh, sorry, they intend to train 100,000 software developers, um, but to their Digify program, they've already been able to train kind of a million people across uh, East, West, and South Africa. So I think that's encouraging, and I think it's responsible. But uh, at the same time, as you said, um, these high-profile safaris are you know kind of the proof is always in the pudding. Um, but great initiative, great visit. A lot of people excited. A lot of my friends were on Instagram taking pictures with him, and you know that star effect was definitely, uh, definitely present. So yeah, great, uh, great, great trip. And of course, listen, uh, I have to be fair in in assessing Google's efforts to to put out digital tools, learning platforms, a la. Uh, you know the MOOC vibe. Uh, I've tried. I've definitely had a look at some of that stuff, and it's it's pretty pretty darn good stuff, I have to say. So, uh, kudos to you, Google, for for doing that. You are in, <laughs> indeed one of the biggest tech firms in the world. We expect no less. Staying with news out of Nigeria, uh, Flutterwave is definitely the toast of the town. There are payments infrastructure provider for banks and businesses on the continent. If you've been hiding under a rock and didn't hear about the ten million dollar Series A round of funding, they they sourced um, courtesy of investors led by Greycroft Partners and Green Visor Capital, then I don't know where you've been because um, this is definitely one to celebrate. They're a fairly young company, only founded in 2016, but already ha- you know, have under their belt something like 10 million transactions worth $1.2 billion. What's not to love, Musa? What's not to love, bruh? And an amazing opportunity. I mean, in Africa alone, merchants and financial institutions um, are quite hamstrung because of our digital payment infrastructure. Um, so they've seen a huge opportunity here because I think less than 1% of the $380 dollars billion um, that's being transacted is non-cash payments. Um, and so that those payments have been made through cards and there's a big opportunity for them to start launching an infrastructure and a network to capture that market. So I think it's excitement all around, um, but more importantly I think the enablement of small businesses from a commercial perspective really unlocks value for our economy. Definitely. Big shout out to Ian Olua Aboyeji of course the founder or co-founder of uh, Flutterwave, also the co-founder of yet another Nigerian startup success, Andela, which itself is doing excellently well, have um, uh, re- you know recently received even more international funding uh, to complement the funding they received from the uh, uh, from Mark Zuckerberg and his wife's foundation. Um, so, of course, Ian Olua must be riding high as a successful 
uh, startup founder on the continent twice over. He's living the dream that many, many, many startup founders uh, aspire to. And, and sadly, many startup founders on the continent in Nigeria and elsewhere on the continent may never experience. Yeah, and I think it's quite uh, quite impressive that they focus the energy quite squarely on being able to try and make sure that they can provide kind of open APIs that make it so much easier for merchants to be able to get paid and to pay digitally. Um, I think even in a country like Nigeria, with such a huge population of informal traders, this is a huge problem for them to solve. Um, and I think their team have, as you said, proven themselves time and time again. And it's really exciting to see that even in the second win, they're getting this kind of attention. So big up to the Flutterwave team. I think it's a critical gap that they're filling in the digital ecosystem. And of course, providing the right mix of local relevance and global potential, I think, has been key. I mean, despite what I said earlier, I mean, some studies pointing to Lagos continuing to be one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable tech ecosystems on the continent still, um, it has its critics in, in as far as um, prospects not having sufficient sort of applicability or scalability in a global context. Um, certainly, you know, Lua, you know, proving that you can not only, you know, be totally relevant to a local market, certainly a mindset uh, promoted by the likes of Jason and Joko, but you can also, while you, you know, prove a, a, a business case and, and actually make money on the way to proving it uh, right there in Lagos or in Nigeria to start, you can be just as, as promising a prospect for the, for the global market. No doubt this investment pointing to that fact. Yep. And let's do the right thing and support them, right? So that's part of what we need to um, do as the tech and entrepreneurial community, Flutterwave, amazing solution. So do the right thing, guys. Let us support. Uh, we're going East Africa next. Um, the traditionally uh, Middle Eastern-focused venture capital investor, Wamda Capital, has made its first investment in East Africa. They have led a $10.3 million debt equity Series A round in Twigger Foods. Now, they're a mobile-enabled supply platform for retail outlets, market stalls, you know, kiosks and that kind of thing in Kenya. And... Um, Twigger joins a pretty uh, impressive list of investors, which include DOB Equity, AHL Ventures, the Omidya Network, among others. And as part of the deal, uh, Twigger has landed the services of Wamda's Fadi Gando, who will be taking a seat on the company's board. Dang, bruh. They stay winning. <laughs> These guys stay winning. And in fact, I was made aware of them by uh, Mark Kaigo on his last visit. He said to me, go check out this website. And I went to it and I was like, these guys are crazy. They're actually saying they're revolutionizing African retail um, because I think they're passionate about the fact that goods and markets need to be cheaper and easier to access um, from vendors. Um, they also kind of are a mobile-based cashless business-to-business supplier um, and they stock uh, things like bananas. 200 million bananas sold, 2,600 vendors and 92% customer acquisition rate. So these guys are on fire. They're cooking at the moment and I think they're a great business and also in a space that's less sexy, you know, kind of if you look at uh, a lot of the general places that we cover, financial services, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these guys are operating in an environment of African retail that really needs a lot of organization and needs a lot of technology to enable that. So I think they're awesome. I think they're great. I mean, we, you know, the number you called about bananas, I mean, they're essentially the largest um, sort of channel for banana sales in Kenya. Isn't that insane? Uh, tech-enabled business uh, being able to claim that sort of thing. Uh, and no doubt, uh, Wamda wanting to keep a very close eye on on their progress and definitely leverage the very best of their insights, ensuring that their executive chairman uh, sit on that board. Not that Twigger's CEO, Grant Brook, is going to mind at all, I imagine. No, no, he's not going to mind at all. And I think while we add it, just to give a shout out to the other team, right? And I think a part of what Africa Tech Roundup does is connect the dots. Um, the CEO, Okikonde Mwatele, um, the director of sales, Yunia Bidale, and Joshua Mbugwai, who's the director of production. So that's a, this seems to be the executive team, people behind Twigger. Um, and as I said, they're doing an amazing job in retail and we're going to be watching them closely as well. I know why you found that necessary, given all our uh, discussions about um, expat founders and all that. I see you, bro. I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch me closely. Watch me. Watch me. <laughs> now, for sure, though, we, I, mean, I, think, I think it's also important um, to recognize the complex uh, dynamics of what it takes to succeed at the sort of level. Uh, the, perhaps to... A, not even perhaps the the idea that um, you pretty much can't do it without local insight, can you? Can you? No, absolutely. And I think diversity on teams of this nature is critical to success. So big up to the CEO, but supported by a really great diverse team. Awesomeness all round. So. To South Africa now, where something called Uprise.Africa, uh, dubbed South Africa's first equity crowdfunding site, has already garnered more than 30 signups. Now, 
this is interesting news because on some level, there are a lot of people who are excited about the notion of, uh, you know, an alternative uh, investment source that hasn't existed before. Uh, on the, on, so you have that on the one hand, but you also have on the other hand, the sort of mixed results and the mixed um, uh, the mixed reputation similar platforms have abroad. Um, they often signal uh, w- w- when when startups you know resort to, to to listing on such you know on similar sites. It is, and I say some you know there. I'm not even going to try and pick out the winners from the losers. There are some that are better than others for sure. But often the signal or the you know what what's what's derived from uh, a startup that finds it necessary to list on something like this is wait. Um, you guys couldn't source the funding on your own. Um, it usually creates an immediate question mark about uh, the viability of that business. And in some cases, some of these platforms have been accused of just not vetting correctly and actually not putting forward investment prospects that have been suitably checked for for potential and, and really financial soundness. I'm hoping that this platform will be able to sidestep those issues. Yeah, I think, I mean, they're trying to set themselves up for, for success and that they're initially looking at um, six projects. So I'm assuming they're going to vet quite, you know, quite, quite, uh, quite aggressively. Yeah, they have said they will. These are projects when they do come online. Okay, so just so you know, they're saying towards the end of August, early September, they're going to come online with six investment prospects that any of you listening could uh, potentially invest in. So, yeah, they're definitely saying they'll be vetted quite thoroughly through a, 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 a tenuous process. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I'm quite interested in kind of the, 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 the supply side. Essentially, they're going to be crowdfunding equity. And the challenge with crowdfunding equity, especially in a market like South Africa right now, um, is that consumers are quite uh, quite under the squeeze. So I'm interested in seeing the business model around being able to get that money in. Number two, to see what the returns look like over a period of time. Number three, the conditions of engaging in this kind of investment. I think it's great. I mean, as you mentioned, alternatives are, are, are an awesome, um, innovative way to get people more inclusive or more active in the um, in the in the funding space, but um, it's always going to come down to the detail of uh, you know how much am I putting up, what are the conditions, and what am I getting out over what period. So I'm quite interested in that as well. But good one to watch, and also just making sure that it is investors who are signing up for this platform are either sort of accredited or at very least educated on what they're in for. I think they'll need to manage their brand quite carefully to make sure that one that doesn't become a dumping ground for startups that really can't get their act together and, uh, you know, package sufficiently to organically access uh, finance, uh, you know, through traditional means, through VCs and and other sources, or even initially through angel investment. Uh, So there's that to worry about. And then there's also the the fact that um, I think relative to most other more developed parts of the world where the angel investment scene is more developed, you know, the VC scene is more developed, you're probably on average going to be dealing with uh, less clued up or less experienced investors who then also need to um, be vetted for their understanding of how these investments work, how risky they are, etc. And their launch is predicated on local regulators basically giving them the nod because uh, they are wanting to come online with a novel uh, investment structure that doesn't quite exist. And, and um, to date, uh, local regulators have been quite reticent to, uh, to sort of just say, go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think once again, if you if you just look at the models, um, you know, in terms of uh, how it works, and for someone that wants to get involved, it's kind of a platform where you'll be able to have visibility, so a bird's eye view on a number of different deals, which I think is great because you can browse offerings almost like in a menu type format, which is which is a nice uh, nice value add, and the, and the entry point is as little as ten thousand rand, which I think is moderate. Uh, this is what just under a thousand US dollars, which is quite fair. I mean, which is a quite fair entry point if you want to get some skin in the game. But also, they're saying they've got a really kind of clear step by step process and an infrastructure. Team. So I think you know the model is great, but uh, as you said, there's still some some regulatory battles that they have to face, and in the long term, I'm very interested to see what the uptake will be. But uh, yeah, good luck, guys. Africa is their uh, their web address. Yeah, check them out and tell us what you think. Um, is this something you'd invest in? Is this something you trust? Have you perhaps invested in uh, equity crowdfunding sites before, perhaps in the UK and, you know, or, or in the US or elsewhere? Uh, what do you look for in those deals? How much do you sort of look to the team to vet the deals? And, uh, and also in terms of expectation, do you feel more secure perhaps investing via a vehicle like this uh, rather than, say, as an angel investor directly or through an angel syndicate of sorts? 
Tell us what you think. Where do you think this is going to fit in? Uh, give us a shout at African Roundup on Twitter and Instagram. On Facebook, of course, we are facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, if you want to email us, hello at africantechroundup.com is where you'll find us. Now for some interesting ride-hailing news, which for the first time in a while doesn't necessarily involve Uber. I guess it does on some level. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about China's Didi. Uh, there are the massive ride-hailing service, Chinese ride-hailing service, that, of course, famously uh, pushed, or shall we say edged, Uber out of China, buying uh, Uber's Chinese business and, and pushing them out of that market altogether. So Didi has invested undisclosed sums in the Estonian ride-sharing company Taxify, as well as the Middle Eastern ride-hailing service Kareem. This in order to expand across Europe and Africa, no doubt, take on Uber. Ooh-wee. Hmm. This is such a great solution because what they're saying essentially um, is that they're creating an English version of the app, which is great, and it's it's actually it's taking the the, the, the communication between uh, driver and uh, and rider to the next level because they're doing text message translations, um, but they're also expanding quite aggressively in order for them to start capturing the market with this instant messaging solution. But I think in addition to offering bilingual services, they're also going to be making moves towards uh, investing in the world of autonomous driving, which, as we know, is something that's starting to heat up. Um, and after buying out Uber's Chinese business in, in 2016, um, I think they've been quite aggressive about positioning themselves for this opportunity with autonomous uh, driverless cars. Yeah, we know that Lyft is pushing very hard in that direction, as is Uber, which has famously done so for a while. Um, it's quite interesting to see Didi's global agenda start to, to materialize. I haven't tried to, to use Didi in, in China, but I, I have spoken to one or two people who who have in the past, who, of course, if you can't speak Chinese, it's pretty tricky to use. And definitely opening themselves up to, to English for the first time is quite an interesting move for them. But um, also quite interesting is their choice in who to partner with in other parts of the world. No doubt Taxify doing quite well here on the continent, relatively speaking, for a, a, a very modestly resourced operation relative to Uber. They've, they've done quite well. I have to say their experience... Um, at least one out of three times is not a pleasant one, either because the driver is not great or the car is not clean or, you know, uh, relative to Uber, I have to say, which I'll probably get a bad experience one in every maybe eight to ten times and that kind of thing. But given the, the, the meager resources they launched with um, around the world, not least here on the continent, East Africa, certainly... Um, West Africa as well as here in South Africa. Uh, Taxify definitely looking the part. Kareem doing the thing, uh, taking on Egypt, taking on parts of the Middle East fairly successfully. Rumor has it, I mean, this is, un I mean, we're talking sums between two and seven billion in terms of what these guys are, are rumored to have been, you know, to be pouring into these ride-hailing services to take on Uber. And quite frankly, that's the kind of money you'd need to make a, a, any sort of go at, at, at denting Uber's ubiquity in, in any of those markets. Um, they're valuing the business about $50 billion, which is almost, which is this makes it the second uh, most valuable tech startup in the world, only second uh, to Uber, with even an investment from for Apple. So I think they're geared for success. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really going to watch this quite closely. I just have a very simple question to ask you. Um, um, you know, when you were in China, you obviously didn't use their service because I thought you did or you didn't. Uh, I see what you did there, bro. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> it's been itching. I've been itching to say that. <laughs> oh, my word. So corny. <laughs> you didn't get it. Maybe next time I'll diddy. <laughs> Sorry. Let's move on. All right. We just move straight along. Uh, listen, some uh, interesting ecosystem news that I think is worth promoting. Certainly, ABAN is the African Business Angels Network. They're offering masterclasses um, uh, as well as a summit in November. So between now and November, they've got quite a few masterclasses planned. And then, of course, in November, they have this incredible uh, event on the on November 15th to 17th, the, the, the African Angel Investor Summit. We are partners this year, and uh, we're really, really excited to tell you about it. Not just because we're partners, but because we talk about the problem very often on the show, and uh, we're excited to be part of the solution. Now, ABAN is definitely doing the most as far as helping the various 
angel networks on the continent, get the education they need to participate more meaningfully, syndicate their activities and actually contribute meaningfully to the foundation we know we need for startup success on the continent. And so between now and November, there'll be masterclasses available, classes in Johannesburg, Abuja, Cairo, Marrakesh, Cape Town, Lagos and Nairobi, as well as some other cities that might actually, you know, pop up at the last minute, uh, all leading up to the, the annual summit in November in Cape Town. So do yourself a favor, head on over to abanangels.org uh, to see uh, what's on. Click on the events tab, check out all the boot camps and masterclasses, as well as information for the annual summit. You'll find everything you need there, abanangels.org public service announcement, folks, because we need to start becoming part of the solution. If you are in any position to to contribute meaningfully as an angel investor, with money or without, if you're keen on finding out how, how you become a part of the action, ABAN's bootcamps, masterclasses, and indeed the summit in November is definitely something you should check out. Moving swiftly along now to Bitcoin, which is just, just, just claiming those headlines these days. Um, I have to say, um, I'm a little overwhelmed by all the news about it. There was that Bitcoin fork, the famous, you know, community rivalry that resulted in two separate currencies being formed. I mean, we're not even going to go into this, but there was Bitcoin on one hand and then Bitcoin Cash uh, that was formed as a sort of uh, alternative currency. And um, what I do want to say is at some point in the future, I'm going to be reaching out to Simon Dingle, who... I defer to for, you know, for understanding, wrapping my mind around these things. Uh, it's actually worth following him just to keep up to speed with all the developments in this regard. At Simon Dingle certainly will be a great resource for you. That said, um, there's Bitcoin. Suddenly there's Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. That's the first part. And then there's this ridiculous run, uh, uh, you know, record run that Bitcoin has enjoyed, you know, just killing those numbers, making us all wish we'd put in at least 10 US dollars in the currency like 10 years ago, because did it exist 10 years ago? I'm not sure. When it first launched, because that would probably make us a millionaire or something crazy like that. I don't know if 10 bucks would do it, but but certainly, um, you know, it would have made me that much richer than I am right now. What do you make of this whole Bitcoin thing, Musa? This Bitcoin thing is quite something. I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's quite phenomenal that the, there's about 15 billion in market cap that's been added just in this last week. Um, but I've been watching it quite closely. I even got myself a Bitcoin account and I invested a moderate kind of $10 in there. Um, I can safely say that my money's almost doubled in the last three months um, because I logged into my account and I checked. And although, you know, $10 is probably 0.00315 Bitcoin, so it's really small, but um, the value is now up to 64,000 Rand per Bitcoin. So, so what did you, what did you, and which platform did you use? Luno. Luno is a great platform. Um, so if you go to Luno, if you're investing in, in South Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa, you can go there. And when you use the platform itself, um, it actually gives you a, a wallet in which you can play, pay money into it. It converts it into Bitcoin. And you essentially can monitor that in real time. Um, and what's great about that is that you can also trade your Bitcoin and you can cash it in on the same platform. So it's really safe. It's really easy. Um, and you can learn about it as you go along. So I mean, I've, so far, I've had a safe and positive experience. But uh, I should probably put more money in to get the benefit or the bigger benefit. Um, I think it's going to be very topical, of, you know, and I don't think it's going to go away. There's lots and lots of stuff that still needs to happen around the, um, around the uh, regulation, around, there's just a lot. Um, but I think getting in early is never a bad idea, especially if you can do so in a safe way and without investing, that's going to break your back. So um, I'm definitely in and I'm trying it out and I'd definitely advise anybody who is curious to, to, you know, to dip their toe in it and see how it goes. As someone who follows pro Bitcoin pundits like you know Simon Dingle, uh, I've pretty much come to accept that this constant expectation that you know there's going to be a bubble that is going to burst and this Bitcoin thing is going to prove to be a, this disaster thing. I'm actually over not oh is it oh so your ten bucks yeah pretty much doubled. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I just got interrupted because Musa just showed me his his account showing off there, yeah. showing off his account, his Luna account, and showing how well he's doing. There's not much in there. <laughs> There's not much there, but yet. But yeah. yeah, but I mean, I think it's fair to say um, the argument for whether or not Bitcoin is a legitimate store of value or indeed a an investment vehicle of sorts, certainly a, 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 a decent currency. I think that argument. It has been laid to rest by and large. I think the question is, what are the implications in terms of mainstream finance, um, 
uh, and, and e-currencies in general? Certainly, what does this mean or signal in terms of uh, blockchain applications and how ubiquitous they may or may not become as part of everyday life? I suppose those are all answered questions we're all going to learn the answers to soon enough. Yeah, I mean, the reality is I, I think, um, you know, for the next, I'd say, two to three years is still going to be pretty much a technology for really early adopters. Um, so I know that all the banks and most financial institutions at the moment have got some sort of work stream or some sort of um, think tank around how they're going to be you know, tackling, incorporating or competing, whatever it is, um, with these new technologies like uh, in the cryptocurrency space. Um, but I do think it is important that what the, the value that they pass on to the consumer, as far as the reduction in things like traditional rates that you would pay, um, as far as ubiquitous access, as far as being able to get out your you know your money and your your transaction ability in real time all of those things are really core to being able to create a great financial value proposition for a new consumer so i don't think it's anything anybody can avoid especially if you're sitting on the financial services uh, kind of service provider side um, but i do think and it's going to take a little bit of time before it becomes mainstream um, and i think it'll probably more be the market demand that forces a lot of institutions to adopt this um, a lot quicker than they probably have planned i actually forget sometimes that you you actually have uh uh, you know, a history with uh, with banks. I mean, it, it, you were you were an executive at NetBank, of course, and you no doubt have a, a finger on the pulse somewhat of what they're still thinking and that kind of thing. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, what the likes of you know a really traditional operator like NetBank in the South African context will come out doing. Because uh, and I you say NetBank because typically they aren't they, they they haven't made it part of their brand to sort of lead at the front in terms of adopting innovation and that kind of thing necessarily. But it would be interesting to see how like. Old, you know, old school legacy players like that, like deal with this. And if you've invested in Bitcoin or have very strong thoughts on this trend towards the adoption of e-currency, uh, perhaps you totally disagree with people who think it's a, it's not just a fad and you want to let your voice be heard. Send us a voice note and tell us what you think, your experiences in perhaps trading Bitcoin. Hey, if you've got experience in, in mining Bitcoin, we especially want to hear from you. And if you have any unique experience in terms of front row access to seeing what Bitcoin or e-currency is, is doing or how it's being used on the continent, perhaps through activities you've observed or actually taken part in for yourself, send us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com. To South Africa next, where uh, Tencent, um, which is what's easily one of like the world's most valuable companies at this point, at least top five, I believe. Uh, well, Tencent, the Chinese company, of course, 34% of that company being owned by the South African uh, you know, tech giant Nasbers. Now, they're making the news because they're going through the ringer in China. Um, the Chinese government is uh, is uh, cracking the whip on, uh, you know, VPN use and uh, all sorts of regulatory measures that are negatively impacting Tencent's, uh, you know, share price performance in, in, in China. And it's becoming quite apparent that there is a direct correlation between how well Tencent does and how poorly or how well uh, Naspers is doing. And of course, the huge argument right now, is there anything more to Naspers than that precious 34% they own in Tencent? Yeah, and if you look at the numbers, the South African company's 32 million rand in, uh, dollar investment um, was made in, in 2001. And at the time, it was kind of, you know, pitted as the deal of the century. Um, and now that stake has gone up to about 128 billion um, in value. Um, and the challenge is that NASPER seems to have kind of had one trick pony and they're looking for another, what they refer to as a genie in a bottle, that's essentially going to be able to save them. Um, but the challenge for that is that, uh, you know, the unimpressive growth that they've been seeing of late is putting a lot of pressure on the business as a whole. Um, and Naspers has just kind of been struggling from an operations perspective. So they're bleeding cash. Um, and it's been over the last 24 months uh, from, a, from a financial perspective. So I think it, you know, it might just be one of the situations where a, a, a pivot is needed or some, a major acquisition into a cash cow of some sort. Um, but at the moment, they're really, really struggling. And it's something that's been maintained over the last two years consecutively as losses. And so, I mean, we, we, we sort of headlined a show like two or three shows ago, you know, the news that one of uh, Nasperis's high profile investors going, listen, guys, um, just just admit that you haven't been able to add value past this very, uh, you know, serendipitous acquisition, 34% acquisition you made in 10 cent. In fact, some of us, you know, would like to access value in that company in a much more efficient manner, i.e., 
it is time to unbundle this thing and allow those who want to invest directly in Tencent to do so and not hold us, you know, hostage to this ship that you are you guys aren't running correctly. Um, and it's becoming harder and harder to argue that, that that's not the case. That said, I mean, Nasberth has famously been, uh, I guess, a hoarder of value. Uh, it's it's difficult to, to argue that um, it hasn't worked in their favor in the past. They're not typically the kind of company to sort of, jump in and out of investments willy-nilly. They tend to to make big bets, um, often at a time when no one else is, 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 is watching. I mean, I think of Code Academy, the Code Academy acquisition they made last year, and a number of other acquisitions they've been making of late. Don't expect them to be unbundling those sort of investments if they sort of really do well in the next sort of mid to, to, to long term, because that's just not their style. Yeah, but I also have to say, I mean, uh, the pervading lo- logic in modern business is what worked in the past is not necessarily what's going to work in the future. So I always kind of have to have a very sober look at the reality of what they've done has not worked and it's been 24 months, which is two years, it's a long period. Um, they are being you know, quite bullish with saying that they're going to bounce back over the next three to five years, expecting kind of an increase in earnings of about 27%. But, you know, let's be realistic here. Um, by unbundling and being able to sell out even a portion of Tencent, it could do a lot for their, operation, or their operational losses. And at the same time, I think it's a moment in time that allows them to kind of take stock and, and, and re, uh, recalibrate, for lack of a better word. So, you know, I say what works in the past doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in the future. And without an apparent plan, I think that's a big gamble to take, um, you know, in the next uh, short to medium term. I suppose Chris Baker has always been the type to hold cards close to his chest. I have no doubt that he's got some kind of plan going as to whether it's a good plan or one that will work. To your point, Musa, definitely interesting to watch. I do want to, you know, reference a um, an interesting little, you know, table that uh, uh, I saw on Bloomberg, uh, which actually lists the largest non-institutional investors um, in, in major tech companies in the world. Naspers comes in at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seventh in the world. I mean, you've got Arthur Levinson with a 0.02% stake in Apple. You've got Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who, who have 11.5% in Alphabet. You've got Bill Gates at 2.2% of Microsoft. In fact, less than that now since um, he, in the last week or so, gave away a significant amount of his of his wealth, you know, whittling that 2.2 down to 1.6 or something like that. Um, you've got Jeff Bezos at 16.6% of Amazon. That has to be the boss. Of, of this whole of this whole list, um, but then you've got uh, Mark Zuckerberg with sixteen percent of Facebook, SoftBank um, owning twenty nine point four percent of Alibaba, and then Nasdaq is Africa's largest tech company owning thirty three point two percent of Tencent. Correcting me from the thirty four percent I said earlier, um, but definitely quite an interesting thing. We're going to go into Nasdaq at some point uh, and talk about how, on one hand, we're quite you know celebrate the notion of how big they are and how important they are in in the tech landscape globally, but also how, how problematic that company is in context to their involvement in the previous dispensation here in South Africa, which we will call supported a little thing called apartheid. So that's not such a little thing. <laughs> well, you know, I'm being kind, um, but Nasperis, that's not what we're here to talk about today, but we will talk about it on, at some point um, because it is becoming increasingly pertinent, uh, but not today. So in passing, I had an amazing conversation with Eric Mugendi, who is, of course, the managing editor at PesaCheck.org. It is a fact-checking uh, initiative uh, backed by Code for Africa. And we had an incredibly insightful uh, conversation about the, uh, the impact of fake news on uh, the recently ended Kenyan uh, general election. We reached out to have the interview happen before the election because we didn't want his insights clouded by by what would happen next. I mean, lots of people have insights and are unpacking the thing. I mean, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know. So we didn't want a situation where um, he, we, we had his, his insights clouded by that. We also waited until the results were confirmed before we put out the conversation because we didn't want in any sh- way, shape, or form to appear to be trying to influence this, this debate, especially in the context of all the fake news that was, as it turns out, quite rampant in the space. And so so 
there has been an unprecedented level of fake news at play in, in Kenya's election. There have been many other things that um, we can look to in terms of it being inspiring, a record level turnout, um, fairly, despite some of the, the sad violence that occurred, relatively peaceful, especially compared to the last time. Lots to celebrate, and um, I think it's worth pointing you to africantechroundup.com where you will find in the quick tech chats playlist my conversation with Eric Mugendi so you can get a much bigger picture of the role of fake news. But what do you think, Musa? Um, what was your big takeout? I mean, there was a lot, a, there was a lot of think pieces in this, in this, in this regard that came out. What, what do you make of the, the whole fake news scenario specific to Kenya? Yeah, I, I was actually going to just ask you because I was really curious. I mean, fake news, obviously, it's even become a popular term. It's word of the year by Oxford Dictionary, so it's a big thing. Um, but I was quite curious to find out what uh, Eric's view um, regarding the role of regulation um, was with, with fake news um, and whether he had an extreme view or whether technology kind of solves a bit a lot of that problem i mean obviously a lot of uh, the root cause is being able to identify the source and being able to you know to manage that but then there's the punitive aspect of producers of fake news so i'm interested to understand did he have specific views on regulation so interesting one of the last questions i asked him is what does he make of efforts by the likes of facebook for example who were fingered in america's election as being uh, you know, as basically allowing it to to become as rampant as it was and, and go out of control. And in answering that question, he gave me a, a, a perspective that gave me a sense of what he believes the role of regulation or indeed the role of uh, insisting that players like Facebook and, 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 and media companies or media slash tech companies like them uh, should be doing and should be expected to do. So on one hand, you have an extreme sort of, pro-net neutrality view that we ought to take the good with the bad and as far as democratization potential that the internet provides, right? It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's, it's, it creates inclusivity, unprecedented you know, access to education and all sorts of other good things that the internet brings. On the other hand, we need to accept that the very same thing will deliver an excellent platform for nefarious you know, intent to sort of make its way to the mainstream. So they're proponents of that notion that say, hands off everything, stop trying to sort of regulate new, fake news out of the system, stop uh, Facebook's attempts to, to sort of try and scupper the, the trend are tantamount to, to, uh, to censorship. And if we allow them to do it, they'll infringe on our rights as, as human beings, etc. So that's on the far end. Then you've got what Eric holds is, is more pragmatic view that he appreciates that there is an infringement, an innate infringement on, on our freedoms when regulation is enacted or, or rolled out or enforced to control these things. The problem with that, we've seen African governments lean super, super left with that sort of notion. And we know why they've got like dodgy motives often uh, for the, you know, for doing everything from blocking the internet to shutting down social media and, and sorts of, so there's a negative aspect to leaning in favor of regulation, especially when you've got governments that are happy to enforce it willy nilly um, at, at their own behest. Eric is somewhere in the middle where he's like, listen, um, we can't pretend that this stuff wouldn't happen as easily if Facebook wasn't in the picture. And if that's true, then they do have a role to play. And perhaps as lawmakers, and we didn't speak about lawmakers specifically, but perhaps as lawmakers across the continent, we need to try and figure out where the major weaknesses are in all the platforms that ha allow it to happen and see how to protect our citizenry from from fake information. But to me, it's a lose-lose um, scenario regardless. I don't know what you think. I know it's a long answer to your question, but I, I think it's important that we, we, we not oversimplify the complexity of what's at stake if we sort of promote full-on sort of net neutrality and uh, internet freedom on one hand, and what's also at stake if we sort of empower or lobby our governments to push for regulation because we know how that can end. 
there's a lot to discuss. I think the, the angle I'd like to bring and the view I'd like to bring is based on the article you shared uh, a couple of weeks ago that that made me it made me laugh and it made me cry at the same time because it was that uh, I forget where he was from, but it was a blogger essentially who um, confessed to creating fake news as a way to finance his his his, his real news business. That was incredible. Zimbabwean dude, shout out to Zimbabwe. We we like innovators of notes. Okay, no, I'm kidding. But it was the Mail and Guardian. The Mail and Guardian interviewed this journalist who apparently writes for a mainstream upstanding news publication on one hand, but also has two or three quite successful fake news outlets that he runs and makes it a decent amount of. Yeah. And so and so the the lens I want to bring is kind of the model around the incentive for fake news, right? So the, there's the consumption and there's the insatiable want for people to get stuff that may be um you know completely fantastical, unsubstantiated blah blah blah. There's that component. Then there's the business model that says people actually get paid for being able to drive impressions and or eyeballs to their platforms and no matter what the content they put out, the incentive is did people come and see your website, right? So my view is that there needs to be an element of qualitative assessment of people coming to your website coupled with the quantitative impressions or eyeballs. So if you're getting millions and millions and millions and millions of people coming to see something on your platform or on your, um, on your, on your website, there needs to be a second level to say, are they coming to see something that is inherently true or inherently fake? And if it's inherently fake, you should be penalized more so than someone who may have something that is true but is not driving the same impressions. Now, how are we going to get that right? I have no idea. But ultimately, I think a lot of the fake news, uh, kind of the symptoms come from you know that 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 economic reality that this gentleman from uh, the, the blogger from uh, Zimbabwe is taking advantage of is that he's simply being able to drive eyeballs to a site and making money from it. And if real news doesn't do that, fake news will do that job. And those are economics typically of the stomach. And he's using a system that is inherently broken to try and fix it. But then secondly, is how do you get to a point um, where you can have the qualitative element to regulate content in such a way that you're incentivized to put on true content versus fake content um, and then ultimately rectifying the issue of people being able to widely consume and, and, and spread uh, fake news. So that's an angle. It's not an answer but it's I think something to think about and I think at the core of it because people are, are, are driven by you know commerce and or uh, financial incentive, I don't think it's something we should discount. Um, in my latest article for Business Report and African Independent, I basically asked the question who can be trusted when it comes to the truth, you know? And I think that's kind of what bugs me about giving the likes of Google or Facebook the power to decide what truth is and who can be trusted in that context. And I'm not entirely um, trusting of their ability to act on that mandate should we all decide that they should have it. And I know many people feel very strongly um, that they should have some kind of mandate and sort of determining that for us. I think we have challenges as a society in policing such mandates. Then there's the other very sinister side of, okay. Yeah, before you go to the next point, so, so how, do you, how do you think that they're deciding on, on what is and what isn't um, relevant? as platforms, because I'm just trying to get to the root of that, because they don't produce content. They're not responsible for, you know, headlines. They're not the people that are, you know, publishing these things. I know there was some, you know, there was a little bit of um, uh, uh, conspiracy theory around the elections, but ultimately that's not what their business does. Their business is providing a platform for people to do that. Um, So I wonder, you know, and I think sometimes it's a harsh stick, and because of their size and their sheer kind of influence and impact, I do think there needs to be some level of responsibility. Um, But but uh, I always ask the question: They're not really content producers at their core. So how you know how do we then uh, you know kind of beat them with a different stick to the a person who's actually producing content? Um, they're simply using a platform to deliver the content. I suppose they're implicated in the sense that when content when content performs well within the Facebook, let's use Facebook as an example, within their ecosystem, they profit from it. Let's start there. So the and. Uh, 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 Someone with a nefarious agenda who's happy to pay Facebook to publicize a piece of content that they know is untrue or harmful or, or you know what I mean, or, or, you know, or dangerously untrue in some cases. Um, this, there is a potential profit motive, which I think Facebook has a hard time explaining away. You know, or Google has a hard time explaining away when, for example, their ads end up on sites that promote sort of neo-Nazism, you know, neo-Nazi agendas and stuff like that. Okay, so there's that side of things. But then there's also the side of things where there are voices in society that are demanding more and more 
for, for, for companies like Facebook and like Google to, to sort of promote a moral agenda, right? And while I wouldn't want to advertise on, face, on, on, on Google and have my ads end up on, on a site that calls me the N-word or calls me a monkey and that kind of thing, the pragmatic side of me sees this as a dangerous precedent for an infringement on our rights as a society, the, you know, the right to expression, the right to, to free expression, the right to religious freedom and that kind of thing. And I think it's going to become harder and harder to, to expect companies to, to act on that mandate. Also, I feel like there's an oversimplification on who we can trust right? Because, I mean, I was at the, the Menel Media Exchange last week and we had uh, a director from um, Human Rights Watch like give a keynote and in, implied in his keynote is he and a handful of others like Julian Assange, I mean, he didn't say this word for word, but really the, I, could, I could pick up from his tone and what he was suggesting that only so many people we can trust, only so many editors that are willing to really tell the truth or not be captured by the state or by dangerous financial powers and that kind of thing. And the implication being that, you know, here are those we can trust, including the New York Times or whatever. And I'm saying anyone with entry-level editing skills, access to the internet and or a potential agenda to influence or create propaganda for any reason at this point I can't trust anybody. And that's the problem. So how do you regulate in a context where you can't trust anybody? And it, 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 makes, it makes the whole process towards regulation and, and, and protecting the, you know, society on the basis of some ethical standard, which is relative, very relative, uh, and, or some moral standard, actually quite problematic. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? And this is coming from someone who's absolutely appalled by what's out there, you know, on the internet and what's out there in terms of, you know, the weaponized information that potentially influences elections and that kind of thing. But I feel like it's a short-sighted solution to sort of lean heavy on the likes of Facebook, pretend like neo-Nazism doesn't exist anymore because we can't see it or it doesn't reach us anymore. Like, I don't see how it's actually solving the problem. Uh, sure, I think it's... Uh, Sorry, I went into it a bit there and I tried... I don't know if I even made sense, but I guess that's what podcasting is for. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, the, the immediate thing that comes to mind, and I'm, 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 I'm playing devil's advocate here, is I asked the question, in the future of publishing or, or media or platforms or content creation, whatever you want to call it, the future of that is it really about trust does trust even play a factor right because should you as a content producer whether you're you know the new york times or a blogger with an internet connection are you wanting to gain people's trust or are you wanting to put across a point of view and then ultimately the shift in responsibilities on consumers to be able to make that decision right so is is are these platforms really about trust that's the question i'd like to ask firstly the second thing is that if that is the case i think we're leaning towards an more traditional model around the way content is produced and created. And therefore, we're then having to surround a modern business model with traditional things that made uh, you know, current media or newspapers what they are. And that's the regulation and that's all that. that that's what props up those media platforms. And I think that's what in, that inherently creates the trust. Um, my, you know, and I'm interested to hear what, the, what our listeners have to think. My view is that in the future of, of content creation, trust is not a factor. Um, it, there are Opinions. There are lots of opinions, and some of them might, may be divergent. Some of them may be true. I think the opinions being presented don't have to be at the gold standard for trust or truth. Um, the people consuming those opinions have to be right, and I think that's where the investment in um, maybe education is the wrong word, but we're not going to take the internet and turn it off anytime soon. We're not going to sanitize the internet anytime soon. Um, you know, you're going to have an extreme standpoint, as you've already mentioned, where you're turning it off altogether, or you're allowing it to open. So it's not really one of those where you can have a, a more Moderate, uh, a moderate approach, um, and in that case, you have to really shift your 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 your, your strategy to say, if I'm not going to regulate the internet to the extent that I can create this trust or you know uphold these values that I've, I'm used to in a in a you know a television station or a, or a newspaper, um, what do I need to do to ensure that I ultimately 
um, de um, uh, what's the word uh, de weaponize the content that has been produced, and the only way to do that, in the famous words of my, uh, what's it, what's my friend Bob Marley, is that you have to emancipate the human mind, and that if you're going to consume content, and you as a human being are going to take on every piece of content and think it's the truth, that's where the problem is. Um, will the content continue to be produced? Absolutely. Can you stop them from producing the content? You may try, but someone else tomorrow will spring up. So my very kind of, as I said, devil's advocate view is that I think we. Playing the wrong, uh, we're not we're not playing the ball. We're playing the mania. And do you know? So to Facebook's credit, I mean, they they've put out uh, they're committed to sort of helping Facebook users identify fake news or whatever, or uh, a lot easier than perhaps they have in the past. And I think that's everything you said is probably what we need to concentrate more on doing. This is the same way we have like a common sense approach to determining the relative trustworthiness of an article we see in a tabloid. Mm-hmm versus the, an article we see in a more serious, perhaps, newspaper that we respect more. more vis- I mean, there's some sort of common sense. How is that so- common sense ingrained in hu- human beings? Through experience, but also s- through an educational process, right? And, and I feel that's our best bet. Helping people understand that, listen, guys, um, this in- the internet is simultaneously the best thing that potentially ever happened in, 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 in the cause of promoting inclusivity, but also one of the most dangerous tools ever. And the tragedy for me in, in, in what's happening with, you know, what happened with, with fake news leading up to the Kenyan election is not that it existed. It's, it's that there were people who received a fake BBC clip on their phone for the first time. People who no doubt have never interacted with a real BBC site or, the, or watched real BBC news who are now experiencing quote-unquote BBC for the first time and they have no framework for determining whether this is true or not. And because it came from someone in their network, someone they trust, to your point, it's now true in their experience and when it shouldn't be. And I mean, can, can I stop the super ingenious chap or woman or girl, boy or girl who decided to make this stuff in their bedroom or wherever they did it, can I, can I sort of try and frustrate the, the agenda of perhaps the politicians sitting half across the world trying to influence the Kenyan election? Am I in a position to, to make them go away or keep them from interfering from in, in, in Kenyan affairs? No. But what I can do is empower a local populace or a local individual to, to, to develop a sense of common sense around what is true and developing a framework for de- to, for de- for deciding what is truth, what's trustworthy, what isn't. And the sad, depressing truth is the reason this is all necessary is because we cannot trust anybody. Yeah, and I have to agree with you because I think the marketing behind fake news is what we need to focus on. We need to make it undesirable. Um, I mean, fake news is nothing new. It's gossip. People have been gossiping since the beginning of time. Because it's gossip coming from a trusted source, you believe it. And maybe deep down you know that it's probably not true, but a trusted source is telling you that. So I think that that, that reference point around this cannot be a correct thing to consume either which way is important because that's the only way you can contract gossip. Because gossip will continue to happen whether or not you're going to create a commission of inquiry on gossip, whether or not you're going to set up microphones and all the, um, the hairdressing salons to try and monitor gossip, you're not going to be able to do that, right? But people have to inherently have a reference point as to the nature and the branding and the positioning of what gossip is, and they make the decision then whether they're going to consume it or not. Um, ultimately, you can't then punish the person who's sitting there and passing on the gossip because they're just doing what human beings do and that's trying to communicate. So I think that's where, you know, if you take a kind of a very ethereal view of the, of the argument, um, we have to really be clear about what what is reasonable and what is achievable um, versus what is kind of really fantastical and, and trying to you know play something that's not really going to make a uh, make a difference. And so, I mean, shout out to Eric Mukendi for giving me his time. Uh, again, go check out the conversation I had with him. He gave me such incredible insight into the specific the specificity of the fake news problem within the Kenyan context. Um, yeah, go check it out at africantechroundup.com. Uh, go to the quick tech chats playlist and, and listen to it there. Um, and I mean, yeah, granted, I, I love Eric and, and, um, and I, I you just, we certainly wish him well in his new role. But, um, even the, the, the notion that, uh, you know, fact checking organizations like, um, like Pesacek and perhaps in South Africa, Africa Czech, the, the, the notion that they ought to be the arbiters of truth and, 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 and sort of allowing them to do the thinking that we ought to be doing for ourselves, while they have a place and, and they certainly should exist, um, ultimately we should hold everybody accountable, whether they claim to be upright and, and, and uh, maintaining journalistic standards or not, whether they, they claim to be 
sound businesses, uh, tech firms that care about the planet, uh, startup founders who want to change the world, politicians who, who you know, who promise us the, your little, your baby girl in the, in the back room, you know, pl- playing on the laptop, you just bought her. All of us, none of us can be trusted and therefore we need, you know, to, to, to encourage a framework of individually determining what fake news is. I know this is super idealistic and many people are rolling their eyes, but hey, Listen, we had one more news item, but we're not going to get into it because we've long run over an hour. Thank you so much for listening. We'll definitely be back at you really soon. Before we go away, uh, one last time, we definitely want to give a huge shout out to our friends over at the Africa Technology Business Network doing amazing work under the leadership of Eunice Baguma Ball, their founder and executive director, who, of course, is uh, working on a book called Founding Women, which um, is set for launch this Christmas uh, 2017. And um, yeah, they are putting the spotlight on African female founders uh, who are building technology businesses across Africa and the diaspora about doggone time people about doggone time so please help support their initiative head on over to indiegogo to see how you can be a part of making sure that this project sees its way to fruition and um and help many 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 african women and other women around the world discover african woman magic when we were like sitting down talking about the show i thought it'd be a lot shorter than this but um it seems we don't yeah like we're averaging an hour these days but uh, i think it's all good stuff yeah yeah i think it's a fantastic conversation i think uh we uh try as much as possible to keep it as light but as deep at the same time for i think women's month for me just a quick shout out to all the ladies yeah and it's it's women's month in south africa to, to be clear because um apparently the rest of the world celebrates it well, the International Women's Day is another point in the year, but in South Africa, certainly August is Women's Month. So shout out to all the ladies, like you said. Absolutely. And I suppose the reality is it should be Women's Day every day, right? So let's not let's not make it about the month. But, um, you know, there's lots of stuff happening and uh, we'll chat about that hopefully maybe next time we speak. Uh, yeah, we had some, we definitely have some stuff, uh, some, some concepts about uh, women in tech and women in business in general and um, this unfortunate spate of violence that we're seeing impact women, particularly in South Africa um, at the moment and we had our thoughts on that we don't have time to share on that now but we'll distill it and maybe bring it to you at another point yeah absolutely but none, nonetheless uh, yeah happy happy Women's Day to the South African women and you know let's continue to up, uh, to, to up our game and let's continue to support women let's continue to be the best we can be um, and from myself it's been great and it always is I'm looking forward to seeing you back again and uh, thank you for listening for sure and I'm gonna I'm actually gonna close up with a quote from our conversation so whenever I'm speaking to Musa I always like take notes because he's that profound. Yes, he is. Here's a gem he dropped while we were chatting before the show. It's less about the business and more about the network. You best believe that's why we're here. We're trying to bring this whole African tech industry together. Um, We want to be a node, a reliable node for information, for insight, uh, and, um, and really for inspiration that our ecosystem so desperately needs across the continent. And so, folks, do the business, but remember, it's also about the network. So we'd love to hear from you. Look forward to having you join us again. Hit us up on on Twitter, Facebook, uh, email, keep the conversation going, reach out to others, let them know about the show, uh, like us, share us, do the thing. And in the meantime, Africa, do take care.